Amen. All right, church, uh, we've been in a series over these past several weeks that we're calling Revive Us Again, and today we come to Easter Sunday. And, and so we want to think together about how Christ changes our lives, and specifically what I want to talk about is the meaning of resurrection. What does the resurrection mean to us, really? If, if you received a letter in the mail from an official-looking letterhead from an attorney's office that said that you had inherited a million dollars from a relative that you didn't even know about, you would probably be skeptical of that. But the nature of the offer would cause you to want to investigate, right? I mean, you'd at least want to make a phone call because the, 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 um, the offer is so amazing that you would want to know whether or not it's true. And the same thing can be said about Christianity and specifically about the resurrection itself. The, the, uh, the claim of Christianity is so profound and so audacious that it demands a verdict. In other words, every thinking person at least needs to investigate whether or not it's true. Christianity says that the God of the universe came to this earth to live among men and women in human flesh, and then he died on a cross and rose again for you, that he gave his life uh, in place of your sin, your sinful condition, so that you could live for all of eternity. The claims of Christianity are so amazing that you could have an eternity with the Lord God that that you could, in this eternity, you could live in a new heaven, a new earth with all of those that you love, all of those who've gone before you, and that, and that life is offered to you for all of eternity. That claim is so off the charts, it is so amazing that you at least need to investigate whether or not that is true. That that, that is, uh, in, in other words, that is a... Um, a claim that demands a verdict. And so what I want to do this morning is I want us to think about the meaning of resurrection. I want us to think about what it, what it truly means to each one of us. What are the claims? What, is it, what does it truly mean? And to do this, I want us to look at a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 6. I want us to see what the Bible says to us in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 6, about the resurrection. This is what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And, and to do this, I'd like for us all to stand together for the reading of God's Word. This is our practice in honor of God's Word, in honor of what God's Word says to us. We want to stand together and read the text. This is what it says. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of whom are still living. Though some have fallen asleep. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. There are 2.5 billion 
people in the world who claim that they are Christians. 2.5 billion. That is more people than live in the entire nation of China. That is more people than the entire population of China and the entire population of Europe and the entire population of the United States put together. 2.5 billion people say that they are Christians. That's one in three people on earth. There are now over 900 million people who claim to be Christians in the Americas, in both North America and South America. There are now more Christians in Africa than in all of North America. There are 60 million Christians in China. Now, let me ask you this question. How did Christianity go from a a ragtag band of 12 disciples, 12 fishermen in the first century, to one in three people in the world now claiming to be Christians? How did that happen? The answer to that question is the resurrection. The resurrection. Historians tell us that in the first century in Palestine, in the Roman Empire, hundreds, even thousands of Jewish people suddenly became followers of Jesus Christ. That, and, and in fact, that those historians are not just biblical historians. There are non-biblical accounts from Roman historians who tell us that all of a sudden in the first century, there were, there were all at once hundreds of people who came to believe that Jesus Christ was God. Now, so how do we account for that? How is it that hundreds of Jews, who, by the way, wouldn't typically believe that someone could raise from the dead. They, they believed in a general resurrection at the end of time for all of those who believed. But they did not believe in individual resurrections. They certainly did not believe that a man could be God. How is it that hundreds, even thousands of Jews, suddenly believed that Jesus was God? As one Christian historian put it, you cannot account for that by saying that the disciples of Jesus had a hallucination. Because individuals have hallucinations. You don't have hallucinations in groups. It doesn't happen in groups like that. Well, the answer has to be the only, the only answer to that question has to be that they all saw the risen Christ. They had seen firsthand the resurrection. One of my well, my favorite account of the resurrection is actually found in John chapter 20. And in that account of John, he tells the story how Mary Magdalene was the first one who saw that the tomb was empty. And then she runs to the disciples and she tells them, and then Peter and John, John's telling the story, run to the tomb. And, and John puts in there that he actually outran Peter and he got there first. That's, that's a guy for you giving an account. He got there first. But then Peter went into the tomb, and, and, and what, the, what the biblical account says is that Peter looked and saw. And that word saw in the original language is an interesting word. It, it isn't, 
It, it isn't the word you might think it is. I mean, the, we have the English word saw, which is pretty straightforward. And, and there is a Greek word that basically says the same thing as the English word, blepo, which means to see something. But that's not the word that is used in the text. The, the, the word that is used in the text is thero, which is where we get the word theory. And it means to look intently in order to determine what has happened. It means, in other words, to investigate. And, and that is the word that is used to describe what Peter did when he looked inside of the tomb. In other words, he, he, was, he was trying to figure out exactly what had happened. And the text goes on to say that, that he could see that the clothes had been separated, that the linens had been separated, that the spices of the burial were set aside at the back of the tomb. In other words, he was trying to figure out what happened here. And I would imagine that Peter was probably thinking to himself, well, this, this obviously is not a tomb raider because why would they take his clothes off? Why would they leave those expensive spices sitting over there in the corner? I mean, if they're, they're trying to, to, to steal the body. They, they obviously wouldn't have taken his clothes off. They obviously would have taken the spices with them. So what has happened here? He was investigating. And, and really what I'm saying to all of us this morning is that the claims of Christianity, the claims of the resurrection are so profound, so audacious, that all of us have to do what the Apostle Peter did. We have to ask ourselves the question, what happened here? You have, in other words, people who come to faith in Christ have to think about what they believe. Unless you reason through your faith, unless you reason through why you believe what you believe, then when your faith is challenged at some point, then you're going to, you're going to be on shaky ground. And so you have to think through it. Decide for yourself what you believe about it. Japanese, the Japanese intellectual uh, Shishako Indu wrote this about that. He said, if you don't believe in the resurrection, if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, you were forced to believe that what did hit the disciples was something as forceful but different in kind, but equal to it in intensity. Something must have happened to them. If you don't believe in resurrection, you still need to come up with some kind of thing just as amazing and equal in force to its intensity. If we try to explain, and this is the money point, if we try to explain the changed lives of the early Christians we may find ourselves making leaps of faith in something more difficult to believe than the resurrection itself. You know, you might be thinking, well, you know, the apostle Peter had some stuff to work with. I mean, he had seen Jesus die. He saw him put in the tomb. And, and then he, he looked in the tomb. He saw that it was empty. He saw the clothes laying there. He saw the spices. He saw the risen Christ. I mean, there were a lot of reasons why he would believe there are a lot of reasons why he would come to believe, but we don't really have that same advantage. Well, that's not completely true. We as moderns can look back on the historical account and we can deduce some things. For, for instance, let's, let's think just for a moment about Mary Magdalene. John chapter 20 tells us that Mary Magdalene was the first one who saw 
the empty tomb. And that she ran back to the disciples and she told them that the tomb was empty. In other words, in other words, it was a woman who gave the very first gospel of account, in, in some sense, the, preached the very first gospel message. The tomb is empty. Now, why is that important? Now, I want, to, I want you to think about that in the context of history. In the first century, in the Roman Empire, a woman's testimony was not even allowed in court. One of the great criticisms against Christianity in the first few centuries by Roman intellectuals was that it was a woman, Mary Magdalene, who first told about the resurrection of Jesus. That in itself, that in itself was a reason that Romans said that, you know, you, those Christians are not dependable because after all, it was a woman who saw Jesus resurrected. Now, the reason they could get away with that is because in the first century, it was a very misogynist, very male-dominated society. But now looking back on it with the force of history, we can say to ourselves, if you were going to make up a story, if you were going to make up the account of the resurrection, if you're a group of disciples and you wanted to try to fool the world by telling them that Jesus raised from the dead, you certainly wouldn't say that it was a woman who discovered the empty tomb. The very fact that that is in the biblical account is, is evidence itself in the veracity of the claim. That's just one example. Another example is that hundreds of people saw Jesus resurrected at once. I would point out that in the text that we just re read together in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul the Apostle makes this point. And in essence, what he says is, you folks know that this is true because many of you who are reading this saw him raised from the dead. 1 Corinthians, the book of 1 Corinthians, the letter of 1 Corinthians, one of the earliest letters, the Apostle Paul, was actually written about 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And so the point that, that Paul is making is actually really powerful. He's saying, you know this to be true because many of you saw it. And not only that, you've talked to people who saw it. I, I make this point all the time, and I think I make this point just about every Easter. So those of you who only come in Easter, you think this is the only story I've got. But I grew up in this community. Uh, when my family moved here, uh, I was five years old moved over on 20th Street in Bethany. I'm 60 years old now. Uh, <laughs> was, it, was that my wife who did that? <laughs> Sounded like it came from her. I'm 60 years old now. It sounds old. 55 years ago, I moved to this community. And interestingly, there are people in this room who knew me when I was five years old. There are some of you in this room who went to high school with me over 40 years ago. So, in other words, I can't make stuff up. I can't make stuff up because a lot, most, there are a lot of people in our church who've known me practically my whole life. So, if, if I were to say in front of the church, you know, I was the star quarterback for the state championship football team back in 1977... There'd be a lot of people who say, no, you weren't. 
No, you weren't. I remember. And, and, and what, so why am I making that point? Well, think about what the Apostle Paul is saying. He was saying, the, the, the things that I am writing to you are of first importance. Jesus died on a cross and he rose again. And you know that's true because many of you saw it. It was in, within 20 years of the event. If it had not happened, they would have been able to deny the claim. Because it was close enough to the event. So here, here is another example of why we, even in modern times, can look back at history and we can say, there's really good evidence that this must have happened. Notice the Apostle Paul says, we have written these things to be of first importance. And, and that term, first importance, means ultimate importance. In other words, this truth is the most significant truth in all of life. There's nothing else that comes even close. It's like looking out at a night sky and seeing the brilliance of all the stars, and then the minute the sun comes up, the stars disappear as if they were never there. That, that the sun rising itself overwhelms the night sky. Paul is saying this truth, the significance of this truth is so profound, so powerful, so important, it overwhelms everything else. Jesus died on a cross for you and he rose again. And that truth is the truth that overwhelms every, every other truth in life. So uh, what I want to do in the, in the few minutes that we have left I want to point out to all of us why the resurrection is so important to us. Three things. First of all, number one, because of resurrection, we have nothing to fear. Because of the resurrection, we have nothing to fear because Jesus rose from the grave showing us that he has defeated sin and death. He has defeated death. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is found in Mark chapter 5. It's the story of Jesus healing the daughter of Jairus. It's, it's a remarkable chapter and all kinds of things are going on in that chapter. He heals a, a man who's got a bunch of demons. He takes the demons, he puts them into a bunch of pigs. I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing chapter. And, and, and then he goes from there, and, and, and he's in a crowd, and he heals a woman who'd had a blood disease. And, and, and uh, while he is uh, in the crowd, Jairus, a synagogue official, comes up to him and tells him that his daughter is dying, and, and he desperately needs Jesus to come and heal his daughter. The thing that is interesting about that is that Jairus is a synagogue official. In other words, he's a leader among the Jews. And, and he's asking this controversial Galilean preacher who he's heard is a healer to come and to save his daughter. He's that desperate. He begs Jesus to come and to heal his daughter. And, and so Jesus walks with Jairus, and this crowd is gathered around him. He's healed the woman with the blood disease. All of these crazy things are going on around Jesus. There's a lot of, a lot of things happening, and Jesus is walking with Jairus toward his home. 
And some men come from Jairus' home and they stop Jesus and Jairus and they say to Jairus, Jairus, no need to bother the teacher anymore. We hate to be the ones to tell you this, but your daughter is dead. While Jairus is absorbing that news and every parent in the room right now can empathize with a father who just hears the news that his little girl is dead. While he is absorbing that news, the text says that Jesus turns to Jairus immediately. It's interesting that it uses that word, that Jesus immediately turns to Jairus and says, Jairus, do not be afraid. Only believe. Do not be afraid, only believe. Now, you, do you know that the words do not be afraid are found all throughout the scripture, Old and New Testament? Or some variation of that, do not fear, do not be afraid, fear not. One biblical scholar I've read says that, that if you take all of those various times in scriptures, that, that a variation of the words do not be afraid are used, it would, it would come down to about 365 times in Scripture. I don't think that that's an accident. I think it's as if God is saying to, to all of us, every single day of your life, you should wake up and say, I don't have to be afraid. What do people fear the most in life? I've been a pastor a long time. I've talked to a lot of people about their fears. I've felt them myself. What people fear most is insignificance and death. When Jesus looked at Jairus immediately, after he heard that his daughter had died, and said to him, do not be afraid, only believe. I believe Jesus was saying to him, I'm going to raise your little girl. Don't be afraid. But even more than that, I believe that what he was saying to Jairus was, in the not-too-distant future, Jairus, I'm going to die on a cross, and then I'm going to rise again, and I'm going to defeat death. Do not be afraid. In other words, and I want all of us to hear this this morning, maybe the most important thing that I say all day long, The one thing in your life that could truly devastate you? The one thing in your life that could truly destroy you? Jesus is already taken care of. He's already taken care of it. And I believe that that's why Jesus looked at Jairus immediately and said to him, do not be afraid, only believe. I think of those words often when I talk to people whose hearts are broken because of what life has thrown at them. I, I think of those words when I sit with a family who's just lost a loved one. I think of those words when I pray with someone who's just heard from the doctor that they have cancer. I think of those words when I talk to a family whose, whose children 
have gone off the deep end and they think that life is over. I think of those words often in those ministry moments when people's lives have been decimated. I think of what Jesus said to Jairus in that moment, do not be afraid, only believe. What Jesus would say to every one of us is that the one thing in this life that could truly take you down, that could truly destroy you, that could truly decimate you, I have already defeated. What does the resurrection mean to us? Why is it of first importance? Why is it the truth that overwhelms every other truth? Because of the resurrection, we have nothing to fear. Isn't that a wonderful promise after the year we've been through? Every single day of your life, you have Jesus in your life. Every single day of your life, you ought to wake up in the morning and say, do not be afraid, only believe. Number two, because of resurrection, life has meaning and purpose What the resurrection says to us is that Jesus is alive, unlike any other religion. Jesus is not just some religious teacher. If you believe in his propositions, you take them to heart, then maybe in some way you would identify with him. That's that's what every other religion says. That's what every other religious leader says. All of the other religious leaders are dead and gone. But what the resurrection say to us is that Jesus is alive. When he identified himself with Mary Magdalene, he said to her, don't touch me. She, I'm sure she wanted to hug him. She said, don't touch me. I'm not yet whole. I've not yet ascended to the Father. In other words, he was saying to her, you have me in front of you in my physical presence, but Mary, one day you're going to have my Holy Spirit. I'm going, to, I'm going to the right hand of the Father for all of eternity, and I'm going to give you my Spirit. You'll have my presence in ways that you've never had before. What, what, what the resurrection means to us is that Jesus is alive and that his spirit lives in us and that we have him for all of eternity. The resurrection means that life has purpose, that there is a God, first of all, there is a God, that he gave you life. You're not an accident. He gave you life, he gave you purpose, and he wants to have fellowship with you for all of eternity. In other words, because of what we believe in Christianity, everything in this life means everything. But but think of what the atheist says. If, the, if what the atheist says, if what secular humanism says is true, that we're really just an, an accident, then nothing in this life means anything. One day, the world's going to burn up in a ball of fire, and everything in this life will be forgotten. Nothing in this life means anything. Now's a good time to quote C.S. Lewis. S- sermon wouldn't be complete if I didn't. C.S. Lewis once famously said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, 
of infinite importance. The only thing Christianity cannot be is moderately important. It is either of infinite, ultimate importance, or it it means nothing at all. It cannot just be moderately important. If what Jesus said is true, and if what Jesus did is true, rising from the dead, then Christianity is of ultimate importance. There's nothing else in life that is more significant, more powerful, more profound than that. But if it's not true, life has no meaning. I actually believe that the way that Jesus came to Mary Magdalene is symbolic and emblematic of the way he comes to all of us. Because when you read the account in John chapter 20, Mary goes to the tomb. She looks for him. She can't find him. She thinks immediately, you know where her mind goes? You know, Jesus had been telling them that he was going to rise again. Jesus had been saying that he's the Lord of life. You tear down this temple, I'll raise it again in three days. He was was very clear to the disciples and to everyone who would listen uh, that he was God and that he was going to come again, that he was going to die for our sins. All of that was clear in his teaching leading up to the resurrection. Jesus resurrects. She goes, she sees an empty tomb. Where does her mind go? It doesn't go immediately to resurrection. It immediately goes to somebody stole his body. In other words, and this is important, she did not have an intellectual category for the risen Lord. There there was nothing in her mind that led her to believe that that could happen. And so how is it that she came to believe? Answer, Jesus came to her. He came to her. And he said, what are you looking for? It's really kind of a funny story. What are you looking for? And, and, and Jesus is standing right there in front of her, and she, she thinks he's the gardener. Somebody stole his body. Can you help me find it? Listen to me. The reason Jesus, uh, that Mary could not see Jesus in the beginning is because she was looking for a dead Jesus. And what I want to say to every one of us is the reason that many of you have not found him yet. You're looking for the wrong Jesus. How did she finally find him? How did she finally realize who he was? It's, it's a beautiful story, and, and it's very simple. He just said her name. He said, Mary. And when she heard him say her name, she knew it was him. And even more than that, by the way, even more than that, she knew who she was. Jesus didn't say, it's me. Behold, I'm here. That's not what he said. He just said, Mary. Mary. And she knew. How are you going to know? This is such an important point. The way a person comes to Christ 
is because Jesus comes to them first. And he says your name. That's what happened to Frank. And in that moment, all of the intellectual categories are blown away. He's going to come to you. He's going to come to you. He's going to come after you. And when he says your name, you'll know. There are some of you in this room right now, some of you watching online, he's saying your name right now. He's calling you right now. And then you, you can't explain it, you don't understand it, you, you don't really have an intellectual category for it, but you just know he's calling you. Number three, why is resurrection so important? Because of resurrection, all of us can say the very best is yet to come. The best is yet. That's what Christianity says, the best is yet to come. The way you live right now depends on what you believe about your future. You believe you have a glorious future, it impacts the way you live right now. It, I mean, we know this to be true in, in, a, in a kind of finite way. If you've got a vacation coming up, aren't you a lot happier? You've got a vacation coming up in a few weeks. You have a rough day at work. I don't care. I'm going on vacation in a few weeks. Boss gets mad at you. Well, I don't care. I'm going on vacation in a few weeks. Customers getting on your nerves. I don't care. I, I'm, I'm going on vacation in a few weeks. What you believe about your future impacts your right now. That's true in a finite, in a finite way, but in, a, in, a, in, a li in the life of a believer, it, it's infinitely more true because we know who holds the future. We know what the future holds. And because of that, we have joy in the right now. Okay. What does resurrection mean? It means we have nothing to fear. It means life has meaning and purpose. And that our future is secure. Let's pray. Would you pray with me?